so for those of you that don't know me or Dubbit, um, my name's Pete. I head up the research and strategy department at a company called Dubbit. So we are a kind of a consultancy and a digital studio. Um, we create content for kids. Um, and shameless pitch, but we've got the fairy garden down in the playground. If anyone wants to go and play, it's a, it's a VR experience. Um, and there's loads of kids using it as well, which is, is, is great to see. So if anyone has time, definitely worth going and have a look at. Um, as part of us creating content for kids, and working with clients to help them make content for kids. We spend a lot of time doing our own research and I'm going to be kind of talking through some of that today. Um, the reason why we do that is to try and spot patterns that are happening in the media industry in terms of how kids consume brands, how they're crossing platforms, and try and spot things that are changing and things that we can kind of take advantage of as an industry. And I think one of the reasons why we're doing that, and I, I know Mike Bat today has spoken about kind of the TV world feels like it's a, a spinning top that's going faster and faster. And I think the whole entertainment world kind of feels a little bit like that. And one of the things that we've seen a lot over the last kind of 15 years is media fragmentation and it's driven by consumer behavior but it's also driven a lot by the brands that are producing content and presenting it to kids through the different services so we know that channels now are less scheduled so you know in the 90s and noughties we had channels which actually were scheduled and curated content very specifically for kids at specific times now kids can get content at any time on any platform Media is always switched on. So when you look at the amount of media that kids consume now, that wheel has got much, much bigger. We're seeing, you know, over an hour and a half to two hours extra per week that kids are consuming. You know, for about four years in terms of kind of video, gaming content, social content. And that's because they have access to it all the time in any place they want it. The other thing that we think is really, really interesting is that UGC content has meant that there's much more, much more content out there. So not only are kids are able to produce their own content, they're also able to really easily distribute it. So you're now competing against people with really low barriers to entry as well. So all of that has meant that the kids' media world has become more fragmented and much messier. And we um, track kids' favourite brands. So we have, a, we have an, an ongoing tracker which looks at, get us kids to name what their favourite brands are right now. And over the last 18 months, we've seen, I call this longer tail, fatter head, which you can't really tell what this, the slide says, but what we've seen is that over 18 months, when we ask kids to name their favourite brands, they've gone from 1,005 to 1,129 in just one, one and a half years. That's like a 10% increase in terms of the amount of branded content or content that kids are consuming. What's really interesting, so kids have got more content, which is great. What's really interesting is the top five brands have now taken a bigger share than they did 18 months ago, than they did two and a half, three years ago. So, so those bigger brands now, once they get to the top, are actually taking a bigger share in the market. So what we really want to do is we want to understand how do you become one of those brands that starts owning a larger percentage share of the market. So... We ask kids what the top five brands are. These are the, the top five brands that kids named across a number of different countries um, worldwide um, over 2015 and the start of 2016. So there's a couple of things that you'll probably notice quite quickly. One is no TV brands. Um, that's not to say that TV brands aren't still really important. If you look in the top 20, I think 10 or 11 of the top TV brands, uh, the top brands are TV brands, or TV-led brands. It's obviously Lego and, and other brands there are on TV as well. The second thing you'll notice is there's a real mix between traditional brands. So Lego and Barbie being kind of, kind of consumer products also been around for seven decades and these kind of more modern mobile brands such as Minecraft, Angry Birds and Candy Crush who ironically have been around for around seven years so you know seven times longer these two brands on either side have been around for. So what 
probably another thing that's perhaps quite interesting is Candy Crush, which obviously isn't a kids' product, but I'll explain why that works so well for kids shortly. What's probably not obvious is what the commonalities are between these five brands, and we've been doing a lot of research trying to understand what these five brands do that's the same as it, same as each of them makes them a top five brand. So we found three things, um, and today I'm going to talk about the second most important thing, which is family friendly. This is creating content that appeals across generations. So we asked three generations, we asked parents, grandparents and children um, to identify what they perceived family content to mean and roughly when we analysed it it fell into two different pots. The first was it has a benefit or doesn't have a benefit to my child so they saw family content as having benefits to, to children. The second is has has been played by parents, is played by parents, or has never been played by parents. Um, so do the parents actually have an involvement in, in that piece of product? And they think that if, if they've had contact with it and if it benefits a child, then it is therefore family content. What we asked the parents and the children to do is we asked them to rank their brands by their benefit to their child. So we, we had 100 top brands. We asked not the parents to rank all 100, but to rank their top brands by their benefit to their child, rank them by the level that they've used them, and also place the brands on there which the brands were, which they thought were acceptable. What that allowed us to do is it allowed us to start to heat map where the acceptable brands fell. And I'll explain what acceptable means in a minute. Um, so it's top five brands. You can see all sit within this acceptable zone so you've got Minecraft and Lego sitting really heavily towards has a benefit to the child Angry Birds and Candy Crush is played by parents and by grandparents Barbie is quite interesting because it actually ranks really really highly for those parents or grandparents that have passed Barbie down to, to generations for those that have a child is playing with Barbie and they didn't play with it as much it kind of actually ranks quite lowly so there's a real friction in terms of people's perception of Barbie so let me just explain the methodology very, very quickly. Um, we run an ongoing trends tracker, which speaks to over 12,000 kids and 12,000 parents every year. Um, it's in every continent, um, apart from Antarctica at the top, but we're, we're fairly sure that that's okay. Um, and what we do through that is we track kind of media patterns and media trends, and it allows us to understand where things are changing, how, how brands are emerging, how the kind of popular brands are performing in terms of cross-platform consumption. Um, in addition to that, we do a lot of work in terms of kind of uh, app analytics, online app on, online analytics, and we also place trackers into kids and parents' devices and track how they search. That allows us to really kind of spot when things are emerging as well as what those popular brands are. By, by doing that, we're able to spot patterns, and then we stick those patterns into our Play Lab, um, which we, we do over a 1,000 hours of testing every year. And this is a mobile, mobile um, Play Lab we can take around the world. This allows us, importantly, to actually observe kids on those patterns that we spot. So really lots and lots of observational research in here to see, OK, we've spotted a pattern. What does that actually mean for how a kid is engaging with that pattern that we've, we've observed? Um, and also get the parents in to talk about it, especially when we're looking at kind of new technology and new media as well. So I mentioned earlier the acceptable zone, and I'm going to try, to try to explain what we mean by the acceptable zone. Um, so there's a guy called Jan Carlsen, who some people here might have heard of. He's a CEO of Scandinavian Airlines. And when he took over what was then a kind of a, a failing airline a carrier, he spoke about a company becoming more consumer-centric by stopping thinking themselves as a company that flew planes to a company that actually flew passengers and people. I think that's a really important thing when we speak to parents and how they see content, because they just see it as a vehicle that allows their children to go from A to B. <laughs> Um, and actually, the bigger, most important thing for them is the emotional relationship that kind of hangs around that. So the way that a lot of parents explained 
content to us and content they felt was acceptable is they thought about it more as this should have an, meet an emotional need in my child's life. So if my child has a need or has a moment, we want that content to actually fulfill that. If it's a distraction, that's fine. But we also look a lot at does it help our child when they're sad or they're happy. So entertainment really kind of forms all those, those different purposes. So what they think about from that perspective is, first of all, does it help my child achieve something? We spoke about the benefits. Those benefits are very different across different countries. So if you look at the US and Asian countries, for example, education is really high as a benefit. If you look at the UK or Australia education a little bit lower and you start to see things like humor and social become more important when you go to um, the Middle East and um, some of the emerging markets like South Africa and Brazil you see much more social kind of benefits parents are looking for kind of social and cultural values so actually that kind of helping my child achieve something means something very different to different people but they're looking for a benefit the second thing they're looking for is actually can you give me a moment that I can share with my child and they're not talking about sitting down and having a really fulfilling experience because some platforms provide that and some experience do provide that but if you can allow them to have a one minute experience with their child in a day a magic moment and that's something that means something to them um, if you're able to demonstrate that you have a benefit to the child and you're able to create a moment that's when parents say that they are we kind of said then my child can use without permission but it's a little bit more than that it's more then my child can use without me kind of worrying about it and, and thinking that they're not doing something negative really without me feeling like a bad parent um, what that means is the content reaches more kids and it also means that the parents are far more likely to make a consumer product purchase around that piece of content. So why is that important from a kid's perspective? Well, they agree with parents. Um, nearly three quarters of kids say they choose content their parents approve of. It's a big way that they can negotiate what content parents will switch on for them. Um, in addition to that, um, a lot of the consumer product sales are made around kids talking about adverts with parents and I think the presentation before spoke about TV being a more effective advertising medium but we're starting to see YouTube now which is moving less away from kind of volume metrics towards quality metrics in terms of how people consume. We're starting to see that impact on the advert effectiveness through, through YouTube so if a child is watching a video for more than around seven minutes we actually have a much much larger increase in terms of ad effectiveness because the parent is likely to have seen a bit of that and have an, a, a conversation with the child which is a huge impact on intent to purchase. Um, the final point is this 81% who said they can choose content with known characters. That's a really, really important factor for us because that's the thing that allows you to kind of cross over generations because for the characters that parents know, grandparents know, then it's really important for kids as well because there's that cultural reference between different generations. And we'll talk about how LEGO have done that through their, their licensing programme. And a lot of talk about mum here today. Mum is pretty much the most important thing in the household. Um, and we have the momometer. Um, we have the American version, which is the momometer. Um, and the <laughs> um, and what it, what it kind of shows, um, so what we do here, just to explain really quickly, is before we do in-home immersions with kids and parents, we ask them to take a quick picture so we can actually show our clients what they look like. This was for, for DC, a, a big segmentation we did for DC Thompson a few years ago. Um, and we started noticing this kind of consistent trend as, as, as the kids get older. So you can see the two, two little lads here, all boys, and I'll explain why boys. So it's, girls are a little bit different. Um, the boys leaning in, the really young ones, really leaning into their mum. They use their mum for introducing almost everything. Occasionally dad introduces something crazy and then mum has to pick up the pieces of, of what dad's thrown into their lives but you can see that they're like little monkeys they're kind of hugging into their mum they're starting to begin the social play so peers are starting to become important but it, it's really at six to eight where peers start to become very important because this is where kids start to discover passions and explore new things but they're still leaning into mum especially boys who go back to their mum for validation quite
quite a lot and I'll explain how Minecraft kind of kind of really nurtures that a lot. When they get a bit older, nine and ten years old, you don't really think of mum being kind of such a, a dominant important factor in, in the same way when they're younger but they're still there as a comfort blanket. So we still see at this age, boys really kind of showing their mum or, or dad or grandparents things. They still want that kind of validation. Girls start to move away a little bit more there because they're actually able to reward themselves, whereas boys need someone to pat them on the back. Which I don't think changes as we get older. Um, what happens here that's really interesting and perhaps the thing that starts to make them move more towards peers is that discovering a passion that happens at six to eight when they're nine to 10 starts to become kind of niche content. So if they're into football or skateboarding, whatever it is, a six to eight years of old at nine to ten they're actually starting to take take that off into different directions become much more niche there might be a certain type of skateboarding for example once they get to 11 to 13 they think they're independent they are independent but they're not as independent as they think they are and actually when you talk to them they kind of quite like the fact that mum still knows everything so in this picture here you could probably vaguely see the mum in the in the pink top at the end of the table glaring at the boy her son at the end of the table in the gray t-shirt um so He's very independent, but his mum knows everything, much to his dismay as we're interviewing him in front of his friends. So she knows what he does in the woods behind Cribs Causeway, and she reveals that to us. She knows that he still has the Beano under his bed, and she reveals that to us. So he still has that comfort blanket. He's happy his mum knowing about that, but he doesn't want his friend to know about it. So it's a real kind of frictious age there. So we know that parents and, um, are really still important. Even if we don't think they are, you speak to these boys, they want their parents still to know what's going on. And girls are very, very similar, but just slightly more independent. So... Thinking about a, a talk that um, Jeff Swampy Marsh did in 2012, one thing that he said that really, really stuck with me was that when he was making content, his, ob his objective with, with Phineas and Ferb was to make a joke, pass over the child's head, hit the parent, sat on the sofa behind them, and make the parent laugh. The parent laughs, the child turns to the parent, they have a conversation, or the parent squirms because the, the reference was a little rude. Gigglebug does that on new device. We do a lot of work with the guys at Gigglebug. Um, really, really nice concept. And they kind of have a similar approach in that they think that giggling is infectious. So if you can make a child giggle through the, the Gigglebugs, the parent giggles, the child turns to the parent, they giggle together, you've created this moment. What's really interesting about that is you can't measure it. So we're in this kind of age now where we have metrics. And as a researcher, I obviously love metrics. I'm not saying don't use them. But the moments that allow you to become a brand that really kind of cross generations are sometimes ones you can't measure. And the really interesting thing about what Jeff Swampy Master is doing and what Gigglebug is doing is their content is on a screen. So they're that plane essentially. But what they're asking you to do is they're asking you to look away from the screen and have an experience off that screen. And that's the magic moment which actually cements brands like that. It's something that you can't measure. So let me briefly talk about some of the, the case studies here. So Candy Crush. Um, we did a study last year with um, called Tech and Play, a great study by the University of Sheffield and the University of Edinburgh as well. And um, CBBS were involved in it, and um, and a few other people. A really interesting study because when we started doing the study, now working in the industry, I know that kids consume Candy Crush, but quite a lot of people when doing the study were like, kids on Candy Crush, really, and. Candy Crush is massive amongst kids for a few reasons. It's a very, very simple experience, a distraction experience. It does things really, really well. But one of the things that we think is really true of it, and it's similar to Jeff Swampy Marsh's approach, is it actually connects generations really, really well. So we go into a lot of homes with kind of multi-generational families, kind of sit down and talk to them. And one of the really common things we see with Candy Crush, and it's interesting from two perspectives, is 
Nan gets stuck and Nan turns to the, the kid and asks for advice to get them through a level. The kid, without almost a word, helps the Nan and stick that level and the Nan carries on. So you've completely role reversal there. So the adult is not the teacher, the child is a teacher. And Candy Crush has kind of allowed this, this experience where you're as good as the, your, your, your own abilities, but actually if you invest time in it, you become better. And it does kind of mean that you aren't necessarily being taught in the same way you, you would be elsewhere. So it allows anyone to be the educator. The second reason why it's really important is we've met tons of grandmas who tend to call this jellies or candies or, or, or whatever they call it, paying bankrolling their kids through Candy Crush to keep them on the same level so they know how to help them. <laughs> it's a great monetization model. <laughs> Um, Minecraft really, really similar in that there's there's kind of no hierarchy to or, or barrier to entry. You know, it, it's it's all about collaboration. It's all about sharing. You know, if you're in a community, if you get stuck, you go to your peers, you go to your community, you help them stick. But you can learn at your own pace, and young kids can teach older kids. We go into homes and see kind of younger boys, siblings, all teaching each other and helping each other. And I saw another really similar experience to Candy Crush with a, a four-year-old boy and a six-year-old sister, and the girl got stuck um, for for actually a, a a weird reason with gaming that girls' depth perception actually advances slightly later, so boys are better at depth perception, and she got stuck on, on this kind of this area, and he helped her unlock that without a single word being spoken between them. Now those kids fight all the time, but there was this pure kind of simple experience that happened between them. So we see that with Minecraft as well. But we think another thing that's really, really interesting about Minecraft is the fact that parents see the benefit of it. Now, I'm not necessarily saying parents understand Minecraft because they kind of don't. They also kind of don't understand why it's really popular. But one dad, and I, I kind of said this yesterday, he was an architect, so it's a little bit skewed, this dad in, in the US. But when he saw his kid creating something, often something that he'd inspired or, or he'd, he'd reviewed, he felt really guilty asking his kid to stop doing that. Now, with TV, he had no issue switching TV, regardless of what he was watching. The TV was very, very easy to turn off. But as he said, if I was at work doing something, if I was doing something that I was enjoying doing and someone just came and told me I couldn't do it anymore, that would really upset me. It would really frustrate me. So with Minecraft, he finds it hard when his child says, look, I just need to finish this and then I've got that. And he can see where he's going. He finds it very, very hard to switch off. And we see that quite a lot. The other thing that's really interesting about Minecraft is we often talk about it as a social network. So we know there's great big communities and peers around there, but if you ever do any research into Minecraft to see the kind of really true strong bonds that happen in Minecraft, it is in the home. So it is bringing brothers and sisters together. We did some research in, in Compton with a, with a family and there were three boys. Um, her dad had passed away, so it was a, a single mother living in a one-bedroom one bedroom flat. But when these boys got home, it was a 13-year-old, 12 or 13-year-old, 8-year-old, and a younger boy as well. And they were just on Minecraft, and it just became the kind of social glue that brought them together as, as a family unit. And you kind of looked at this really hectic and sometimes quite volatile life, but Minecraft was this kind of really calming factor that allowed them to teach each other and work as a team. So I think that's really interesting. The other thing, speaking about the mammometer, is we know that parents don't get Minecraft. When kids get stuck, quite a lot of kids go to parents and say, what should I build? And they might say next-door neighbor's house house or the Empire State Building, but parents are actually helping inform that. And especially with boys, when they build it, they'll go and show their parents, say, look what I've done. So we see that's still really, really true in Minecraft. The final brand um, I want to talk about is Lego. We said it's kind of you know 70, 70 plus years old, um, and similar to Minecraft, it kind of you know rewards that creativity. And we know that parents like to play with it and build with it, and they like to inspire their children. Um, but there's a couple of things that we think is really, really interesting. That's kind of consistent with with how Lego performs. The first is a real typical play pattern we see when we go into houses and Lego. We use it a lot for kind of warm up tasks in research. 
when it's the kind of sandbox open play, we often see the child and the parent playing together and building this, this kind of open, open world together. Quite often because the child needs a little bit of guidance to help put, put these things together, needs a point of inspiration to start with sometimes. When they've created a scene, so like a Lego, Lego open world environment, and they start putting their licenses in there, so they start putting their Marvel or their Star Wars in there, that is quite often where friction starts because the parent has a totally different cultural reference, which I spoke about at the start, to the, to the child. So from a parent perspective, they, have, they think of, of um, Han Solo as something totally different to what a kid thinks as Han Solo. You know, for, for moms, Han Solo was quite an attractive man a few years ago. For the kids, he's, he's some, some old guy. And, and, you know, it's a very, very different experience for, 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 for those two kids. And that's where you see friction. So quite often when that kind of like role play comes in with the licenses, that's when parents can kind of get pushed to the side. Um, I think that the thing that, that's interesting thinking about those licenses is, is we think Lego have done two things really well with the licenses. The first is they've created this kind of these licenses which have appeal over multi-generationals. And someone asked me about the Goonies yesterday, um, you know, in, in Lego Dimensions. You know, they kind of have super fans, but they also have cult, con, contextual re relevance to each of these different generations. And that's a really, really clever thing because it allows people to have a conversation about their experiences and they know that character, character really well. The second factor that works really, really well and we think is really important is that the licenses they sign up quite often are very, very similar to Lego in that Lego is this kind of environment which, which kind of nurtures imagination and creativity, but it's a vast place, you know, Lego is kind of almost endless, much like Minecraft, you can go and do almost anything. Now a lot of the licenses that Lego work with are really, really similar, so Star Wars, there's so many stories that can be told through Star Wars, you know, there's all these different galaxies and planets, and there's no kind of end to that. With Marvel, the superheroes might have, you know, might be a limit of superheroes well there probably isn't a limit of superheroes judging the amount of movies that are coming out but <laughs> but you can create any super superpower any superhero power so you can go off and be anything so again it inspires this kind of almost limit so just like lego it's kind of like on it's almost endless place so we think those licenses are really, really clever. Um, and another another brand which I, I um, haven't spoken about here today, but the, the Gruffalo is also really interesting. One of the things we talked a lot about parents, we do a lot of, is figuring out who your audience is and what else your audience actually interacts with. And with the Gruffalo, um, one of the things that we saw with, with the Gruffalo is the um, National Forestry Commission is a really, really sensible collaboration for them because it's all about exploration, it's all about tactility, you know, it's, it's all of those kind of things which the Gruffalo is all about. So it's those partnerships making sure they have the same essence and, and kind of brand loyalties that, that your core text does. So thinking about the three top tips for creating multi-generational content, we think collaboration is really interesting. One of the other things we found out from this study was something which I'm going to, I hashtagged at the start, I'm sure is not going to take off, but it's collaborative. The, the kind of thought that collaboration and competition is actually a really, really similar thing. Um, and we think that's a really interesting concept. But removing competition from it, giving users a reason to share something positive, like Candy Crush is doing with the child helping the grandparent, um, is really, really, it was a really, really interesting social mechanic that, that can be used. So thinking less about, you know, the content as a journey but thinking what does, my, what does the content actually allow my users to do with each other the second is is measure and it's don't measure metrics all the time because we get asked a lot when we're, when we're developing digital products to put metrics in there which allow people to go back to their vests and say we've achieved something um, you know this age where you know a, a, a like or a click is akin to getting an, a, a higher ad sale that's great but actually it's probably not going to be what makes you relevant over 
decades over a period of time. So don't try and interrupt the experience through putting metrics in there all the time. Obviously use them, otherwise I'm out of a job. But as content creators, also try to create creative moments that will allow kids to do something, which you can't measure, but you know is there, just like Jeff Swampy Marsh did. The third thing, as I mentioned there at the end with the Gruffalo and Lego, is think about those kind of partners, commercial partners, that you can stand on the shoulders of that really complement your cortex. And I think one of the things we see with, with a lot of brands is when they use commercial partners, whether they be broadcasting partners or whether or not they be, be platform partners or charities and don't choose the right one, that's quite often a confusion for, for, for the parent and child. So think about a National Forestry Commission, relevant to parents. Think about Gruffalo, relevant to kids, but they're actually the same parent, the same child, but they're different, they're different pieces of content. And that is it, I think. Thank you very much. Hi there. Um, I have a question regarding toy unboxing uh, the toy yeah. unboxing phenomenon. Yeah. Two questions. Number one, really su surprised to see that the brands you've mentioned now, all the positive sort of name brands, you haven't got any of the kind of uh, brands like Shopkins, which are hugely popular on mm. for toy unboxing videos. I was surprised to see that name not mentioned in that list. Yeah. And then the second point, you mentioned seven minutes being that critical point at which a TV advert becomes effective. Mm. But a lot of the toy unboxing videos are about three to four minutes. So where does that leave them in terms of it, what makes an effective toy unboxing video? <laughs> um, toy unboxing videos, yeah. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so two things. Shopkins is on the way up. So this research was from the start of 2015 to 2016. And actually, Angry Birds, although I think the movie's probably had an impact now, was starting to drop out a little bit. And brands like Shopkins were definitely starting to come in. So we are starting to see, see some of those, those, those brands come through. Um, in terms of toy unboxing videos, um, I, I kind of say, when, when I think about toy unboxing videos, and parents are like, why? why? Why would anyone watch a toy unboxing video? When you watch a kid watch them, it's almost like meditation. Or it's like the sound of the cardboard being folded back. It's all those kind of like experience. It's like a chill out experience. It's like, you know, the, the book Calm or something like that. It's really, you watch kids watch it. It's like how they, how they would read a book. You know, you guys were talking about books earlier. It's very different to other YouTube content they watched. Um, it's quite intense. And, and I think one of the things that we're, we're noticing with YouTube, I think traditionally, and where adverts, perhaps weren't performing as well on YouTube sometimes was was that the focus was on how many views do you get, how many subscribers you can get. And obviously they've now moved away from that and started to, you know, can you get someone to watch a 10-minute video? Can you get someone to link from one episode to the next episode? And those becoming the metrics they use to and that makes a much more effective ad channel because then you're looking at quality viewing. And I, and one of the things that we, we've definitely noticed is over over the last kind of six months we've seen length of videos start to slowly increase and the times that kids watch one video start to slowly increase as well. I saw a boy, and it's always a boy, I was like dobbing boys in, um, I saw a boy watch for 35 minutes a a van go across the screen. So it's an animation, it's like a bread van went across the screen, there's like trees in the background, the background doesn't change. Then a blue van, two minutes later, then a yellow van. And I sat with his mum and I was like, how long is he going to watch this for? And he just sat there watching it for 35 minutes. I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I mean, he wasn't even a, he was four years old, wasn't even yeah. a, a, a daft lad to be fair, he was good for the rest of the session. But 
<laughs> I don't know if the problem was, if someone had looked through the window, we, the, the parent and me were sat there watching the child, watching the video for 35 minutes. But I mean, I, I think that's why, why, why these sorts of videos, and unboxing videos especially, mm. are performing so well, because they're just so, they are so relaxing. And I think it's almost like parents watching things like Location, Location. You know, they are relaxing, but it's kind of like a reveal at the end. Yeah, yeah. And we kind of like, as adults, kind of like sit there and go, why? But yeah. we do the same thing, just with different content. <laughs> regarding the brands that Lego partners with a lot of those seemed um, male dominant or like mm. catering to a boy audience do you do any research around the gender divide with the brands that they decide to partner with um, yeah, yes um, probably some things like I can't talk about as well but um, <laughs> We're finding girls moving more towards those, those boys. So Mar Marvel now is pretty gender neutral, um, n n gender neutral, relatively gender neutral. And Star Wars again is kind of moving towards that. So we are seeing a lot of girls play within that environment. Um, and I think one of the things that interestingly with, with this we saw, and I kind of showed it with Monitor, is the reason why generational content seems to work so well for boys is because they still go to their mums and dads for validation, whereas girls definitely become independent a bit younger. So we actually start to find that a lot of their media context for girls. It's why social networks become important, and one of the top brands when we speak to girls from like ten is Amazon. You know, they 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 like on Am they look at Amazon as a piece of content. They go on there and they're actually spotting things and reading. This. So gir girls are kind of like travelling into different realms to to boys. So I think the generational content works more effectively for boys that I've seen. And I'm sure that's not a hard and fast rule, but it's definitely something we've noticed. Sorry, so to a little bit more to that point, and the mama mometer, whatever <laughs> yeah. you say. Um, so, so what would a girl, a girls would look different? I mean, can you can you speak to the girls' journey a little bit? Yeah, a girls, a girls does look slightly different, and I think it's probably because a, I, I always use a star chart as a really good example. When we watch how boys use star charts, they get their mum, they do something, and they get their mum to put the star on the star chart. Whereas when you look at girls, they put their own star on because they're actually able to measure and monitor themselves. It's why like a lot of these gaming experiences with boys are kind of like instant gratification. They're very simple rewards and ladders, and why competition works so well for boys because you know where you rank. Whereas girls are a bit happier knowing that they've. they've and again, it's not a, a hard and fast rule. So I think one of the ways that that changed in terms of that journey is you probably look at a lot of the same similarities. And I know there's some people in here who know a lot about children's development um, from, from an academic perspective. Um, but one of the things we see from girls when they get to kind of like that seven, eight years of age, we start to see peers become much more important. We actually also start to see them becoming more advisory to their parents. So quite often a boy at that age, you know, he might have strops and temper tantrums, but he won't actually give intelligent advice to his parents, whereas girls start becoming a bit more in that role. So there are some differences. Um, and, I, and I think once you get to 10, 11, 12, and you start looking at girls, they've started to go onto social media. They still use their mums and dads all the time. So it's not like mums and dads become redundant in terms of how they choose content but they do make decisions, more decisions themselves from a slightly younger age. Okay, thank you very much.